Hello again, how's everybody doing? Welcome to another episode of The Happy Singer. I'm your host, Christy Bissell. If this is the first time that you have clicked on our podcast, thanks for clicking. I hope this is of service to you. This podcast is all about helping people to sing better, to be happier when they're singing. And happy is a simplistic term that I've been using, but really it just means living fully with your music. Every episode so far has been really special, but this one is really cool because um, Matt Edwards is uh, the guy we're talking to today, and he was one of my teachers at Shenandoah University when I was getting my master's. He's worked with a ton of teachers all over the world as well as students. He's helped students get onto Broadway. He has sang himself. He also is just a really cool person, and he knows what he's doing, and I love his vibe. And I'm excited for you guys to hear our conversation because we talk about some really specific stuff. And then at the end, he talks about his own journey with how he started from a place of not being completely perfect and getting somewhere really successful up at the top. So his journey is pretty cool. So I'm excited for you to hear this. And at the end of the episode, if you liked it and you feel like chatting with other people that are into this topic, go ahead to Facebook and join our private group, or it's a closed group. You can find it. It's called the Happy Singer Discussion Group. And in there, we just talk about all kinds of good stuff, but of course, the stuff on the podcast. And um, some people have been sharing their music on the page, which is really cool. And I'd love to hear your music as well. It's just a really safe Uh, welcoming community. So I hope you join. Going back to Matt, he's got a special in on the musical theater world, like I mentioned. So Matt is one of the leading voice teachers for commercial and musical theater styles in the United States. So he is currently an associate professor and coordinator of musical theater voice at Shenandoah, like I mentioned. And he's an, an artistic director of the Contemporary Commercial Music Vocal Pedagogy Institute, which we just fondly say CCM Institute. And that happens every summer, which he'll talk about. But again, his students, you know, they're former Broadway performers. They've been on off-Broadway national tours and all that good stuff. So he he knows what he's doing, and he sees what he said was 1,200 people auditioning, up up to 1,200 people auditioning for Shenandoah alone. That's kind of crazy every year. And I remember back when I was auditioning for musical theater programs, um, because that's what I eventually went to school for, for my undergraduate, I went for music theater, and um, I remember how hard and grueling it was, and I really wasn't given a lot of helpful information on what they wanted. I had a voice teacher and she was incredible and she helped me, but, uh, you know, the material ended up not being appropriate. Um, I wasn't very confident. I didn't know how to speak with adults very well. I mean, maybe I did. I don't know. I was very self-conscious, very, very shy. Um, when it came to showtime, I would always, there so many directors would always tell me I always made a, sh- a switch, but it was only until the show started. And then eventually I improved upon that when I got older. But um, yeah, I just wasn't good at auditioning. I did not present myself well. Um, but Matt gives us a lot of really good information on the collegiate level, getting into a school that's of high caliber, like Shenandoah University. They're in the top 10 in the country. Um, so the competition is tight. But What I gathered the most from our chat is that you just have to be a good person and really work your butt off, okay? Um, So that's something to just remember. It's not just talent. It is the person that you are. 
Are you good to work with? Are you going to be somebody that they're going to want to work with for four years? So I hope this helps um, mom and dads, if you're out there listening, I hope this helps you to help your, your kids get into programs as well as if anybody is listening that's auditioning for colleges. And then, of course, we get into the more professional side. And then we talk about teaching. We talk about all kinds of good stuff. So uh, hang in there because we talk for a while. (laughs) But I promise you it is worth it. Matt's incredible. So without any further ado, here's my chat with Dr. Matthew Edwards. So so thanks, Matt, so much for being here. Um, uh, I have had the pleasure of working with Matt at Shenandoah University. He was my professor there um, when I was getting my master's in vocal pedagogy um, right at Shenandoah University. He's been a great mentor for so many people. Um, not only is he a great teacher, but he's been a professional performer. He has a family. He stays busy. He's constantly doing master classes, speeches at places. He wrote a book, So You Want to Sing Rock and Roll. It's in the series of So You Want to Sing. Um, it's the top one. Am I right, Matt? Yeah. It's like the top selling one in the, in the group. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, I would say, yeah, it's a kind of crazy for someone who had D's in high school English to imagine I have a best-selling book. So it's kind of, it's been a fun journey, a crazy journey. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. You're not alone in that. Um, we'll, we'll, see if I, we'll see if I write a book someday. I doubt that. That's insane. Um, so yeah, Matt, talk to us about what you do at Shenandoah University. You have a new position, right? Recently new with the musical theater department. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, I came to Shenandoah as a voice teacher. Uh, my job was is to teach the musical theater majors how to sing rock and roll during their senior year. And that's what I've been doing here for the last nine years, with the idea being that if you look at casting trends, which we actually did and published an article on it in the uh, Journal of Voice, we're finding now that over 55% of auditions in New York City are asking for a pop rock song directly from the radio or a song from some sort of a contemporary pop musical where it's either something like Waitress where the music is written by a pop rock artist or there's something like, uh, you know, uh, Little Mermaid where it just has a very pop-like feel to it more than a traditional Golden Age musical theater. Uh, as I was here working on that, I ended up uh, joining the PED faculty. I now teach several classes with our uh, master's degrees. We have the only master's degree in the United States in contemporary commercial music, voice pedagogy. The idea being that we help stu- graduate students who come in learn how to teach whatever style it is that they are looking forward to going out into the profession and working on. And then I also took over as the artistic director of our summer voice pedagogy institute three years ago, and uh, we usually have around 140 voice teachers from around the world visit us here at Shenandoah for nine days, where we bring in a wide range of guest artists, people like Wendy LeBourne, Marcy Rosenberg, uh, Marcel Govan from Berkeley. We have Tom Arduini and Ed Reiser, who are big in the New York uh, choral directing scene. Uh, Catherine Green, who is the head of the pedagogy programs here and is a wonderful person. She's uh, part of that faculty as well. Uh, then we bring in guests each year. This year, we're giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to Ingo Tietze, past Lifetime Achievement Award uh, winner. The first one was Dr. Robert Sadiloff, and then the second was uh, Mary Saunders Barton, who used to be the head of musical theater voice at Penn State University. Amazing. 
Right. But as if that wasn't enough, we had a lot of retirements in the musical theater program. And they ended up asking me to take over for a while as director of the musical theater program. So since December of last year, so yeah, I guess it's a year as of now, I've been in the uh, head of the musical theater program at Shenandoah Conservatory, which if your listeners aren't familiar with, over the past several years, we've been ranked in the top 10 and top 20 of musical theater programs in the United States. We audition around 1,100 to 1,400 students a year, and that is to fulfill a class of 18. So it is a highly competitive program, and uh, we have students doing great things. I actually was just in New York on Wednesday to watch our student Roman Banks make his Broadway debut as Evan Hansen and Dear Evan Hansen. I saw that. That's insane, and such a huge. It's a huge step for for that for that cast in general. Do you want to talk about um, the success that he just had in that? Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, so the you talk about success. The other thing that's been interesting is to watch this program grow. When I came here nine years ago, we would have about 120 students um, going into the uh, program audition process. And then out of that 120, you know, we would get our class of 18 to 24. So to go from that to now seeing over 1,100 has already just been a massive shift. Um, in that time, we've seen more and more casting directors taking an interest in our students. And so when they were holding auditions for Dear Evan Hansen, we ended up with three of our guys in final callbacks for the role of Evan. And who they ended up, yeah, it was, uh, uh, two of them sophomores and one a senior or freshmen, two of them were freshmen and one was a senior. And the person they fell in love with was Roman Banks, who was an incredible performer and what was also special about Roman is he is the first African-American to play the role of Evan. And while that really shouldn't be a huge issue in 2018, uh, there's a whole lot more diversity and inclusion happening in you know, the theater arts. It still was a big deal to replace uh, a white leading actor with a person of color in the leading role of a musical that was, you know, like this. And it ended up, you know, a mixed family as well on stage with a white mother and an African-American child. And so a lot of people were really excited about that because it is, again, pushing the industry forward and starting to break down barriers that have traditionally uh, existed for people from underrepresented groups. Wow, that just makes me really happy, and that's exciting. I want to, I want to go and see him do it. Um, I have yet to see the show, which is insane. I live right here, but eventually I'll go to see it. Hopefully, I can see him. Um, so, I want you to talk a little bit more about the students that come in for these auditions for your musical theater program. What are some of the yeses when you go into the room? Um, what would you say? Do that. That's great. We like that. What's a standout thing for you to see? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, what's tricky about musical theater is that you are looking not only at how they sing, but how they act, how they act in a monologue and how they act when singing, how they dance. Can they incorporate their acting training into their uh, dance performance as well? And then, of course, the personality comes into it and then their character type. You know, the stage needs all different uh, types of people, and we're always trying to look for those types that are non-traditional, that aren't the cookie cutters, and how we can work with them and help them find a place in the industry. It's always, we feel good to have a nice mix. Uh, The first thing we tend to notice is personality. You know, there's a, a really unique quality amongst the top students where they are completely comfortable around adults. And adults who have the opportunity to cast them, they can have a good conversation, but there's still something youthful and energetic where you know 
that they are still 17 or 18. Mm. And it's this really cool balance of maturity and youth that we are often looking for. Okay. Um, in part because we have to spend four years with these students. We get to know them very, very well. And we want to have a great personal relationship with them. And if the student is leery around, you know, adults or doesn't quite feel comfortable talking to their faculty about, you know, serious subject matters, it makes it really hard to provide a high quality education. Um, that tends to show through in the monologues they mm -hmm. choose. We are usually uh, looking for a monologue where the student shows that they've done the work. They haven't just got online and downloaded one of those free monologues, but they've read a bunch of plays. They found the style of writing they like within those plays. And then they find a monologue that engages another person and tries to get something from that person. Uh, we discourage students from doing memory monologues, which are those monologues that you start off with. Well, when I was a uh, kid, I had a green ball. Yeah. And then you go on talking about the green ball from when you were a kid. Because it doesn't really engage another person. What we want to see the person do is confront someone about an issue and try to work towards a resolution with that. Because essentially that's where all the high points are in the uh, dramatic side of these shows. And we want to see if a student's going to be able to handle those. Sure, there's a lot of jazz hands in the rest of the show, but when those pivotal moments come, the student has to be able to connect. Mm -hmm. When it comes to singing, uh, we dropped our audition requirements a long time. Well, not a long time, about two years, two, mm -hmm. three years ago. And instead of saying you had to have a golden age and a contemporary, we ended up saying, sing us the two songs that you sing best. And I made that change because at 18, it's really hard for them to be incredibly versatile to sing pop rock, Tin Pan Alley style, you know, traditional musical theater and legit musical theater. Yet that's what they think we expect. Mm. And so we would get these students to come in and they would do an amazing belt song and then they would sing legit and it was just not good. Mm. And then we would give those students a chance and say, what else is in your book? Show us something else, knowing that they were trying to fit the requirements. And so instead we decided to strip those requirements out, have the students show us what they do best and that opens up the field to lots of uh, different things. The student who feels like they are primarily a rock musical theater performer can show that side of them in all their material. The soprano who's only ever sang legit but is dying to learn how to sing rock and roll and learn how to belt can show us what she does and then talk to us about her aspirations. And so we find you know, that's made a world of difference. Within those songs, we are looking for perfection honestly, because when you see 11 to 1200 students, you can look for perfection. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking for, you know, at that point in time, there should be no missed notes, nothing out of tune, no missed rhythms. Uh, we don't want to see potential. We want to see what the student can do now. I think that's a big difference between the vocal performance world and music theater world. Um, when you're recruiting for a voice performance, which if your listeners don't know, that's the traditional path for a classical singer, somebody who wants to be an opera singer. Hmm. They're 18 years old and their voice is not even close to being mature enough right. to sing that repertoire. However, when you're looking in musical theater, Broadway shows are frequently snatching up 18 and 19 year olds like Roman and putting them on the stage. So we're looking for somebody who can show us what they can do now. If they can't belt a high F, that's fine. Just belt a high D. You know, if they're a young man who only has a G, but they really feel like they're going to be a tenor, We'll hear that. We'll know that. I don't need them to go and strain and try to sing anything above that. Um, we're also looking for uh, musical phrasing choices that align with their acting choices. So a lot of times you'll hear the voices pretty, you know, stagnant and even throughout while they're trying to make really strong acting choices. We want the actor to instead lead the voice. 
So if it's an intimate situation and in real life, in that situation, your voice would be breathy and weak, it's okay for your voice to be breathy and weak. And then we expect in the climactic spots where you're living in a place that's larger than life, that everything, your vocal choices and your physical choices would be larger than life. On the acting side of stuff, we're looking for truthfulness. We're looking for honesty. Uh, When people come in and try to show us a wide range of everything that they can do, that can be kind of a turnoff because we're not always sure that we're seeing who the real person is uh, that's standing in front of us. And we're much more interested in getting a feel for who they are at their age because they're 17 or 18. We don't need them covering adult material. We don't need to hear them talking about having a baby, talking about suicide, talking about their dog dying or talking about being raped. And I know all of that is, you know, why are we saying that? Because honestly, that is the most common mistake we see. I was just at an audition where I saw probably 10 rape monologues out of maybe 50 or 60 auditions. And, you know, that's depressing. That's a terrible thing that happens in this world. And the audition room isn't necessarily the place to have that material. In a show where everybody is expecting to have a conversation about those very, very important issues, it makes sense. But in the audition room, we want to get to see a side of you that's a little bit more positive, a little bit more engaged in optimism versus you know, dwelling on something horrible that's happened to you. And then when we have our question and answer, we're looking for students who are able to talk about the program that they've actually read up on what we do at Shenandoah. Uh, They might have questions about the program. We're always happy to answer questions. And we want them to be able to give us some idea about where they see themselves in the future of this business. You know, what roles they think they might want to play one day, uh, what kind of songs are in their book. And what we're looking for there is if they have a true sense of themselves. So, you know, if it's a petite, uh, you know, a woman who's four foot ten and a half and she is trying to sing, you know, these big leading lady dance roles, that's a little bit of a tough mix. But if she comes in with the sidekicks, that makes sense. You know, I've seen I saw a guy one time who was five foot seven who came in singing Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. The Broadway casting note, says you must be six foot three or taller. And it just didn't work. And every role he wanted to do was a role designed for somebody six foot three or taller. Mm. And so we then get into an issue where if that student isn't willing to be flexible and actually move towards the rep that's best for them, you can end up in, you know, somewhat of a struggle and somewhat of a problem. Of and the rules are always changing. You know, it used to be always sing songs from your gender. Uh, That's starting to change. And people are starting to say, you know, to a certain extent, it's fine to sing something outside of that gender binary. Um, I think that's still to be determined in the long run. What I always tell students is, you know, if we're trying to look for a role that we can put you in and you come in singing Bobby from Company, it would have to be a really edgy pushing the boundaries production to do that and what we're more interested in is in what's happening right now in the field and right now in the field we're still pretty much going with whatever gender the role was written for and then we explore outside of that and we are all about that flexibility in fact next year we're doing 1776 with a half women half male cast yes. and we're not changing any of the names but we might have a female john adams 
and it'll be the character will be John Adams, but we want to start to push what those boundaries are as well and see how we can help our students navigate all of that. That's really cool. I'm assuming that Hamilton had a little bit of a, an influence on that idea, right? Yeah, it was the idea of our new music director. We have this amazing new music director at Shenandoah. His guy's name is Patrick Brady. I bet you most of your listeners have listened or seen the movie version of The Producers, and that's his work. Cool. He worked with Mel Brooks from the beginning of that show and was the uh, music director or supervisor for every tour, uh, the international productions and the movie and the soundtrack. And uh, he did over 6,000 performances on Broadway, saw all kinds of things. And when he came here, he said that was one of his dreams. And so we mm. took him up on it. I love it. That's amazing. I'm coming to see it. <laughs> yes, please do. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And so are the students. So cool. So there's a video on YouTube. Um, it's called What Not to Do in an Audition. And this is a video that Matt put together. If you guys are interested in checking it out, if you want to audition for musical theater programs, um, it's funny, but it also is very real. And all the things that he mentioned just now, like things not to possibly talk about in your monologue would be like your dog dying or suicide going on a more positive note. They, uh, he has some of his students perform and it's, it's funny and, and, and very helpful. So that's just a little shout out to that video. Um, so going back to these auditions, Matt, you don't have to say anything about the person, who they are, but could you just say what was the best audition that you've ever seen, that you've ever been a witness to, and what was the qualities of that audition? Uh, man, that's a hard question. When I think back, <laughs> I don't know that there is a, a singular best, but a collection of the best come to mind. And I think of a few specific um, you know, people that when they walked into the room, there was a glow about them. The way that they were dressed, just it looked honest to who they were, but it was put together and it seemed to represent their personality. They walked to the piano and they talked with the accompanist like a working professional. There was no awkwardness at all. And then when they stepped right in front of us in the room and said hello and just chatted with us, uh, you know, banter back and forth, and then opened their mouth to sing the first song, and blew the walls down with an absolutely controlled belt that wasn't pushed at all and emotional truthfulness that you often don't see in somebody that age. And then the thing that sealed the deal was watching them in the dance call when they nailed the choreography and not only did they nail the technical aspects of it, but their personality was shining where you could see who they were, that they loved dancing and we watched their interaction with everyone else and they were, you know, friendly with all the other people. They weren't competitive. They weren't uh, problematic in the holding room. Sometimes we hear horror stories about people in the holding room during the auditions. Um, and then they tend to be the people who follow up. And it's them that follows up, not their parents, which is critical. Uh, I think a thank you card is always a wonderful idea if that school is truly one of your top choices. And it doesn't have to be you know, really flattering. It just needs to be honest that, you know, thank you for the audition. I really enjoyed Give an example of something, uh, tell them that it's one of your top choices if it is, and that you look forward to hearing from them in the future. Okay. Uh, I have a stack that I'm actually looking at on my desk right now that I keep. And when it's time to make decisions, I'm going to pick up this deck of thank you cards and take it with me to the pile. 
and use it as a reminder of the personalities of these students, plus the maturity level and the interest, because all those things are really, really important. And then in all emails with the faculty, uh, the best of the best are professional in their email etiquette. They handle everything, and mom and dad are not involved unless it comes to something where they have to be, such as financial aid. Um, to me, that's the full package. Is you know, It shows us that the student is truly ready for this kind of ultra-competitive, very emotionally draining at times uh, career path. And they're going to start the first week of school with an 8 a.m. ballet class, and a lot of them are going to be in rehearsal until 10.30 or 11 at night. And so we need to know that they have the grit, the personality, the determination, the drive, the maturity, responsibility, and organizational skills to survive that. Yeah. And I have a lot of students right now that are auditioning for Broadway shows. They're auditioning for regional theater. And I can see that there's just, I mean, they've got the talent. I have a lot of girls that they're just belting up to these high Fs. Sometimes these Gs, they sound incredible. Um, but there's like this lifelessness to them. And I'm like, I hope you're not going into the room like that. Um, so when a student has all of that talent, all of that determination, but loses this love of what they do, that's where I'm not sure where to help my students. Like how, how do we direct them into a better, I don't know, a better mindset? Do you, do you see that ever at the school? Um, the number one biggest mistake, I think, is that students think Broadway is the ultimate career and the end-all, be-all, and they focus 100% of their energy on booking that Broadway show. And that is a great recipe for a mental health disaster. Um, if you look at the research, the average age of those on Broadway is around 29, I think, for females and 31 for males. It's around that. It might be flip-flopped. But the people performing on Broadway didn't necessarily go straight out of college. People yeah. like Roman, you know, are unique. They are not the norm. Roman fit a role that was supposed to be young and it fit him like a glove and he booked it. Mm. Uh, you know, but there's so many other shows like, you know, uh, even like a carousel or a Oklahoma where they are looking at a wider range of ages and they're looking for people who are close to the age of those roles. Um, I think a big chunk of helping students with that mental health process is getting them to think about a lifelong career in the arts that's going to have many twists and turns. So in the spring semester, I always put up a sign uh, on the inside of my door near my piano that says, you are 21. You will not be able to retire until you're 72. That means you have 50 years to build a career. Relax. And, you know, we have that conversation a lot. And when they get frustrated in their lesson, I say, turn around, read what's on the door. And then they read it and they go, I know, I need to just be patient. Yep. And then we have a conversation about, yeah, you do. And I read a business book one time that talked about the way that uh, corporations fail. And corporations will often fail if they try to build a pyramid upside down. So you take the founder, you put him at the very bottom of it. You take his great idea and then just expand, 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 and figure or imagine that you'll figure out the rest of the structure when it comes time. When you do that, you're relying on one singular person and everything topples over and falls apart. 
Whereas the most successful corporations build the base of the pyramid first. So they have this brilliant idea, but they take the steps that they need to, to meet the right people, to hire the right people, to take the first step in launching that business. And then they start building up until they have a huge pyramid, top to bottom, full of resources that they can draw on to succeed. And what I do is talk to my students about taking that same approach to building a musical theater career, is that instead of focusing on Broadway, 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 focus on non-equity national tours, non-equity regional theaters, non-equity summer stocks, cruise ships, new readings of musicals and cabarets that are taking place in New York. They are a lot more accessible to you when you're fresh out of college. And by fresh out of college, I mean even up to the age of 25, you're still pretty fresh to the market. Yep. But every one of those opportunities helps you network with someone. And the more people you know, the more things that are up for you. And if you're focusing on only going to Broadway open calls, you're going to miss that experience. Because, you know, at one point in time, Pasek and Paul were writing musicals in, uh, you know, at probably their dorms when they were at the University of Michigan. And a friend of mine, Scott Susong, who's the head of the musical theater program at Illinois Wesleyan University, fabulous guy, great teacher. He got a contact from these two guys that said, Hey, we have this new musical called edges and we're really looking, uh, for a, you know, a second college to try to premiere it at. I mean, would you be willing to have us do it with your students? And he said, sure, come on down. And now he has a lifelong relationship with Pasek and Paul and has had, you know, other interactions. That's incredible. That's incredible. Right. But so you never know. You never know who you're working with that's about to eventually be the next big thing. Wow. And so you need to take that time. And then after you've built a great network on that non-equity level, you will have the performance experience that will make you more competitive at the equity level. So then you start pursuing those opportunities. You start building up your equity points. And then you will know it's time to take the equity card because you will constantly be in callbacks for equity shows all the time. Uh, And you'll realize, wow, I am ready for this. And then that's when you start focusing on it. But by that time, you will have built the skill sets that you need to truly be competitive in that market. Um, A lot of times, students need to just take a mental health day, go to a park, uh, you know, go out with friends, try to get away from what they're doing for a little bit. Uh, Breaks can really make a huge difference. If you take a break and just breathe for a couple weeks, you'll often find that you're more excited about going back and getting into it. I find that reading about techniques, acting techniques or vocal techniques always reinvigorates me and it reinvigorates a lot of my students. Uh, I always tell everyone to read um, The Great Acting Teachers and Their Methods. It's a really cool book that takes you from the very beginnings of Greek theater and to modern day uh, acting techniques. And it tells you how they evolved, how we got here. And it really, for me, brought a lot of uh, you know, little bits of information together and gave me a whole new understanding that informed everything I did as a performer and it got me excited again. Taking an online course would be a great way to get yourself excited again. I think we have a problem in the music industry that people think they get their degree, their education is done, and now it's time to just do the work. Whereas if you go over to our nursing school, all of our nurses know they're getting this degree so they can get their entry-level job to do continuing education that they're going to have to have for the rest of their life to continue to move forward. And performers need to get into that same mindset, the mindset of continuing ed. They need to be going to dance classes. They need to be going to acting classes. They need to be going to vocal coachings or voice lessons. And using all of the new information they get to keep pushing themselves forward 
And then finally, I think they need to read two books, two other books that are not related to performing. The first is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Mm. The book is a terrific resource on how to deal with difficult situations. And if you uh, pick up the book, it's an old book. I think it goes back to the 20s or 30s, but it's still used by a lot of uh, business schools. And it really walks through important information like, you know, don't condemn or complain. Uh, don't argue for the sake of arguing. Let the other person win. It's okay. Uh, try to see things from another person's point of view. Never be afraid to apologize. And just lots of great tips that really make a difference in professional relationships. The second book is Growth Mindset. And or the book is called Mindset, but it's, by, uh, it's about this idea of a fixed mindset versus growth mindset. A lot of times performers fall into this fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset is, is I'm talented. Nobody else sees that. I don't understand why they are so dumb, fill in the blank. And this is everyone else's fault. I don't understand it. Versus a growth mindset, which is, well, I always have something else to learn. I didn't book that gig. So what can I learn from that? How can I push myself this week? So maybe I book the next. Mm -hmm. And every time something doesn't go your way in a growth mindset, you evaluate, you adjust, you create a plan to then move forward. And the self-development that can happen once you adopt that mindset is unbelievable. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's what a lot of my students need. They just, they have this itch to quit. <laughs> like, why? Remember why you did this? Why did you want to start singing? You know, it's, it seems like a really simplistic thing, but it, it's easier said than done when we, as, as we get older. You know, part of it too, um, I think is there's also this fear of saying, you know what, this isn't actually for me. And, you know, sometimes we pursue something like performing and we struggle to get it, but then you start doing this something else on the side and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm really, really good at that and I love it, but I'm going to perform. I like performing. I love performing. This is what I told everybody you're going to do. And then on your side job, you're going, yeah, but I really love this and I'm making a lot of money. I have a great life and I really like this. And then people are afraid to say, you know what, I'm going to switch and I'm going to go in that direction because that actually satisfies and fulfills me more. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to me. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. I, I remember the exact performance. I was singing with Ashlon Opera. I was Doolittle and My Fair Lady. I was having a great time on stage with a great group of people performing. And I was sitting backstage in my lawn chair because if you've ever seen My Fair Lady, Doolittle comes and goes quite a bit. And I was reading actually that book, The Great Acting Teachers and Their Methods. And I was also reading some pedagogy textbook. I don't remember what. I think it was The Naked Voice and I'm sitting backstage going, you know what? I am more interested in learning these acting techniques and uh, vocal techniques to help my students when I get back than I am in jumping up to go run on stage. I think it's time. I think I'm ready to make this transition. And I will tell you, I've never looked back. It was the greatest thing I've ever done. That's incredible. And it shows because you're one of the best teachers that I've had in a classroom. I mean, it's, it's, it's contagious. It makes you want to go and teach like right afterwards. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. You know, in addition, there are plenty, plenty of jobs in the entertainment industry that aren't on the stage. And a lot of my students who have decided to explore those options have fallen in love with them. So for instance, Jenny Ravitz, who is the New York City casting director for Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, Chicago Med, is one of our musical theater alumni. 
she did a casting internship and fell in love with it. And after school, she did another one. And now she is a professional casting director working at NBC. Frankie Ramirez was here. He ended up as doing the same thing. He saw a casting director visit campus, said, I really like what that person does, pursued it, worked at NBC for a bit. And now he's with one of the cruise lines. I can't remember exactly which one, uh, but he's working with, I believe, as a vocal director. And then we have Zachary Durant, who decided that he thought he might want to be an agent after watching Agents Visit Campus. And he is an agent for Talent House in New York City, which represents a bunch of Broadway performers. There have been students I have seen who have gone into education and worked for the educational outreach programs of a regional nonprofit theater. I've seen people go into TV film, people go into advertising. Some people decide to go back to school and get a law degree or to get a business degree. And two of the best uh, surgeons in the world that I know of for voice are former performers. And so, and Wendy LeBourne got her musical theater degree at Shenandoah Conservatory. So, Again, it goes back to that idea of having a 50-year-long career in the arts. When you define it as that, you're not saying a 50-year career on Broadway, because i got to tell you, that's pretty darn impossible. But a 50-year career in the arts, that's doable. And that may have ebbs and flows. You might perform throughout your 20s only to realize you want to start a family, so you go into teaching educational outreach for the next 20 years, and then once your kids are in high school, you realize, wow, I really want to do this again, and then you transition back at an age when you can play the moms and dads, aunts and uncles, and the competition has dropped significantly because so many other people have dropped out of the business completely rather than finding a way to have some sort of a career within the arts. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of your favorite parts of the job that you have teaching? Sure. Students <laughs> are the number one. Uh, you know, every time they walk into the room, it's this exciting energy. Uh, if You know, for people who haven't been around musical theater performers, they're just a ball of joy, light, optimism. You know, they have their rough days, but in general, they're just some of the most driven kids that I've ever met at the college level. And what I enjoy is helping them discover their voice. So many times they get in their minds that there's something they're supposed to sound like. And in the operatic world, there's this thing called a Fox system mm -hmm. where you do classify people a little bit. So you'll say that this person's a lyric baritone, but this person's a verity baritone. And, you know, this person's a lyric tenor. Or this is a Heldon tenor. But the musical theater world doesn't really operate that way. They're looking for individuality. And with new musicals, you never know how they're going to write the role. And when the actor gets cast and the composer is there, they will help rewrite the role if they need to, to, you know, negotiate different parts of the student's range or whatever. Right. And, you know, that's rare. But if you're in a show and they're like, yeah, this actually in your voice pops when it's a half a step down, they will take it a half a step down. Right. They're looking for the individual. And students often have this misconception of what they're supposed to sound like, and they end up constricting in their vocal tract to try to create that sound. So they engage the constrictor muscles that surround the larynx, they retract their tongue, they'll do weird stuff with their soft palate, and they'll end up then having a tight jaw and you know, tight lips, and they can't actually articulate uh, you know, what they want to do. So one of my most enjoyable things is teaching them to find complete vocal freedom. Right. Yeah. So getting registration ironed out so that they always have a choice of what register they want to sing on any given note, getting constriction out of the way so that they can sing with that sound quality. But yet, if they ever decide that they 
you know, want to add a little constriction to create a growl, they are capable of doing that. Uh, you know, teach them how to get their tongue out of the way and improve their articulation because a lot of times vocal issues stem from the tongue not being in the correct place for the bow quality the singer is trying to produce. Yeah. Because the tongue really helps create the formants that give us bows, and if the tongue doesn't do that, then you have to create the formants somewhere else in the vocal tract. And that's when people start clenching things. They start clenching the back of their tongue, clenching their throat, clenching their lips and jaw to try to force that. Versus if you get the tongue free, then all of a sudden the singer should just sing a brighty or a warmy. It's not a big deal. And the sound happens and they don't have to constrict to make it happen. Yep. Yep. The other aspect of it all that I really enjoy is the acting coaching in the voice studio. I've studied acting extensively. I really believe people sing at their best when they let their actor drive the way. I have a favorite quote by Stanislavski that I have on a painting in my room. And it says, vocal sound producing machines are of no use to society or culture. Mm. What we want is living people singing artists. Now, when we're vocalizing, we are just vocal sound producing machines because we are trying to tune up our motor system. But when it comes time to get on the stage and deliver a song, we need you to communicate the human experience through that song. And to help singers do that, I find that really tapping into the acting techniques they've studied and providing them with new techniques and approaches can unlock things. A lot of times you will give them a clearer intention or help them intensify the stakes or intensify their objective. And all of a sudden the voice will un unlock, it'll open up. Uh, and then sometimes it doesn't. And in the instances where it doesn't, then you go back and functionally make some corrections and help the student out. But in those moments where the actor takes over, that's when the real magic happens. Oh, yeah. So what about whenever you're talking about constriction? That's a common problem that we get in the studio. What's something like if you hear somebody putting on a voice, let's say they're obsessed with, I don't know. I have a lot of students that are obsessed with Billie Eilish currently. Yeah. And they try to sound like her. And so trying to unlock their, what you said, their real voice, their neutral voice is, you know, there's all kinds of routes to do that. But, but what's one you love? Yeah. So what I usually do is have them go and listen a lot and listen to a wide range of singers. When a student wants to sound like somebody else, I totally get it. And that's where they happen to be at that moment in time. Uh, Trying to correct that, it depends on the age of the student. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not. They say that the human brain is more emotionally driven than logically driven until around the age of 21, 22. So all of our college students are dealing with this imbalance where emotionally they want one thing, but they can't logically think through it as easy. They usually will come around to understanding logically, but the knee-jerk reaction is an emotional one. And so when you say, you know, you sound great, but I want to find you emotionally, sometimes they don't know what to do with that, especially if they have low self-esteem, because to them, they're trying to, you know, find a new version of themselves because they don't necessarily like the one that they have. But what they don't understand is that the world doesn't need another, you know, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, whoever you want. They need something new that they don't know what that is yet because they haven't found it. And by trying to imitate someone else, you could actually make things worse for yourself because if you showed the true authentic you, it could be the very thing they've been looking for all along. And so I often tell students to go and listen to a, you know, a bunch of recordings or make a playlist for them so that they can start hearing how all of those different individual voices have made a lot of money, been very successful, and yet they do things differently. 
And then I'll sometimes have them sit down with a, a, a song. So I use Hallelujah a lot because there are a million covers of it. I'll have them take uh, different colored pencils and go through the music and mark what each artist does. So they'll start with a red colored pencil and they'll listen to Leonard Cohen and they'll mark every scoop, slide, onset, vowel morphing, dynamic change, register change, vowel shift that he makes. Then they'll go back and listen to, let's say, um, Leanne Rhymes with a different colored pencil and they'll mark all those same ideas. So we'll go through with like four to five artists. They'll have four to five different colors on their sheet music. Then I'll tell them to pick a sixth color and circle the stylistic choices that they liked best from those different artists. And then I ask them to find a, you know, a new copy of that song and write in their choices that are influenced by the choices they listened to. Then have them play around, and most of the time they will realize that they do like themselves and they do not like what they have to offer. They just didn't know the full extent of what they could get away with. And so as they start looking through how different performers make the same song work, it starts to you know, set off some light bulb moments. And then you can begin to get them to experiment at least musically a little bit more so they're not just copying musically. Then as you start exploring things musically, technical issues will show up and you start to release those. Then in moments in a, you know, a song that you're looking that's outside of their comfort zone, you say, you know, let's experiment with a new sound and see if we like it or not. Always offering vocal qualities as an option instead of the end all be all. Because in a lot of our traditional vocal training methods, there is one sound you're looking for. It's a unified sound up and down. But when you listen to commercial artists and musical theater artists, it's not that way anymore. People sing breathy, they sing in falsetto, they sing edgy, they sing warm, they sing neutral. It's all over the place. And so by slowly moving out and saying, hey, let's try warming up your belt here and see what happens, you're gently guiding them to find themselves without having to necessarily take it head on. And what I tell my students all the time is a flexible voice is a voice that can work. You know, you can, there's a lot of ways to sing a musical theater piece that'll get you a callback. There's only one way to move from the callback to booking the job, and that's being flexible enough that the music director, the you know, uh, casting director, the director, the producers can give you an adjustment, and you can jump, take it immediately, and give them exactly what they're looking for. And so if we can inspire that kind of spontaneous, playful you know, uh, uh, desire, I guess, to go and you know, make new sounds and not be afraid of their own voice... I think through that process, we do start to unlock some of those emotional barriers. They start to logically take over their thought process, and then you can really help them find who that person is. You just got to give them time. You can't rush it. And if they still want to imitate a lot for that first six months, that's fine. Just keep slowly nudging them. And most of the time, as they gain trust in you, they will then be more willing to explore outside of the box. Yep. That all makes sense to me. And I love that technique. I might steal that. I've got a couple students that are ringing in my ear right now that that would be great for. Yeah. Steal Like an Artist. If you don't know that book yet, it's by a guy named Austin Cleon. Yep. And it's a wonderful book that you know makes you realize everybody is learning from everyone else. Nobody has developed uh, their work solely by themselves. Yeah. I love that book. You assigned that actually in, um, I think it was the private studio class, right? Yeah. Yeah. And business is studio teaching to help everybody. To realize you don't have to invent your own business. You need to go out and research what kind of businesses you like and then figure out how you can take a spin on those different ideas and create your own. It's an awesome book. I think it should be a must read for every performer and teacher. Yep. I have it actually right here. Um, like my favorite thing from it is um, 
they're talking about copying specifically. And they're like, remember, even the Beatles started as a cover band. Paul McCartney said he was emulating Buddy yeah. Holly, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis. We all did. And then eventually they were like, oh, we found ourselves within that. So, you know, there's all kinds of cool stuff in this book. But yeah, it's it's incredible. I carry it around with me all the time. Well, and see, I think like what you just said, it's those little stories and anecdotes inside of that book that can also be extremely beneficial for the kind of students you're talking about that's really struggling to find themselves. They can read how other people, you know, eventually got to that place and maybe have the courage to enjoy the journey themselves. Yeah. So do you want to talk about a little bit about your book? Cause it's incredible. It's written for people that want to sing rock and roll, but it's not just for that as well. Like it's got vocal technique. It's got stuff about learning. Um, it's got the rock history in it. Um, it even has a little excerpt from Catherine Green, who you mentioned, who was my voice teacher at Shenandoah university. Um, at the end, all about classical singing um, there's vocal exercises in here. It's kind of incredible. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. Yeah, that, uh, it was amazing. Uh, it was soon after I came to Shenandoah, Alan Henderson, who's the executive director of Nats, approached me and said that they were doing this So You Want to Sing series, and they wanted the second book in the series to be So You Want to Sing Rock and Roll, and they wanted me to write it. And my mind was blown for many reasons. First of all, like I mentioned earlier, English was never my strong suit. I learned how to write along the way, but I was thinking, can I do this? And obviously I figured it out. Um, but I was also amazed that Nats was taking this next leap. Nats has been starting to really, you know, years before I've been starting to push that edge, especially with musical theater. But the idea that Nats said, we are going to put out a series that covers all of these different genres that people want to sing is a massive endorsement from that professional organization that it's time that we start treating or training people in the genres and styles of music that they want to sing. And so that lit my fire. And once I started thinking about that, yes. that kind of informed the format of the book. To me, ed, our purpose as educators in higher ed is to show people the entry points for these different uh, ideas to hopefully inspire them to go do their own work. So as you mentioned, I have a little bit about rock history, but it's maybe two to three pages on every artist. And then I say, you know, go read the other history books. And I try to highlight some of the interesting or fun things to get people's interest peaked so they do go out and pick up one of the great music history books about rock and roll and start to learn, you know, how these styles developed. In the uh, vocal technique section, I really try to break down the voice to demystify it. A lot of people, you know, they, they'll know more about their car than the way their voice works, yet they want their voice to be able to raise enough money to buy a car. Those two things don't make sense, right? And so in my mind, we need to get you knowing as much about your voice as you do about a car. And then you can maybe do that, you know, get the voice to buy you that car. Um, and getting to know it doesn't mean that they have to have a high level scientific understanding. At a base level, they should know you have vocal folds in your larynx. They vibrate. They have a muscle component and a jello component. Treat your jello nice. Train the muscle, right? And then look at the vocal tract and realize, wow, the tongue can alter that vocal tract. The soft palate position can change a lot of things. Play around with them. Don't be afraid of them. Explore some different sounds and think about how you might be able to use that. So it's really about trying to push people outside of their comfort zone and getting them to explore all the sounds that are possible. 
And then it has some, you know, stylistic tips that, you know, again, we go outside of the traditional ideas of onsets and releases and, you know, treatment of the melody. And we start thinking about, you know, melodic interpolations, rhythmic play, uh, word play, and the way that you can work things. And, you know, it also gives some advice for, you know, voice teachers. A lot of these rock artists, they're not trying to train their voice to be something specific if they already have a unique sound. And so if they have that unique signature sound and their aval isn't a traditional aval, that's okay. If they like it, if their audience likes it, it doesn't hurt, then it's just fine. You know, and so I think that's also a different mindset when you shift over from that classical world is accepting the fact that perfection is not a prerequisite for singing these styles. And, you know, for those of you listeners who haven't you know, heard me talk before or haven't seen any of my work, I actually have all of my degrees, my bachelor's through doctorate in classical voice. I have my bachelor's in vocal performance from the Cleveland Institute of Music. I have my master's in Louisiana State University in vocal performance and then my doctorate in vocal ped from Shenandoah. And, you know, I love opera. I love classical music. But the evidence that's out there in the literature just doesn't support the idea that it's all the same. In fact, it paints a pretty clear picture that there are a whole lot of differences. And that doesn't mean we get rid of one completely. It just means that we evolve so that we treat the other things as, you know, the individual genres that they are instead of trying to fit them into our traditional box. Yeah. The other thing that is also on my horizon that I'm really excited about is I'm working with a new company out of L.A. and it's called VoiceLessons.com. And VoiceLessons.com has created this amazing online platform for teaching uh, lessons online. It allows the teacher to make recordings, share those recordings with the students, to prescribe vocal exercises. It allows the teacher to play piano in real time on the other end for the singer, or at least to do vocal exercises. Um, then the student can come back throughout the week and check in and review the recording, redo the exercises. It's really, really great. Um, they, they want to expand from that point now to not only offering one-on-one, but offering group classes and singular courses to improve accessibility to pedagogical materials. And so I am going to be working on a musical theater styles course for them. And then the plan is, is to build technique classes for performers as well as pedagogy classes for voice teachers. And so eventually people who take the class will be able to then find voice teachers who are equipped to continue on with that course material and give individual private lessons. And it all will kind of come together. And it's uh, it's an exciting project. I'm going to be filming over spring break, going to Seattle to film. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. That sounds incredible. Okay, so um, another thing that I love um, about Shenandoah University is the CCM Institute. I loved it so much, I did it twice. (laughs) It was incredible. You and Catherine are kind of the head of it. Yeah, so I'm the artistic director of it. I focus on all the curriculum, the education component, who the guest artists are going to be. Catherine is the executive director. She really manages keeping the thing running. And then she's also, you know, works hand in hand with me of going through the materials and making sure it works for our audience and making sure that it's accessible to people of all different levels and stages of learning. What I love about the CCM Institute is it is not a singular technique, but rather what I consider a method. And it's a method based on evidence and based off of historical pedagogical works as well as contemporary pedagogical works. 
And the definition of a system, you learn how to teach a specific way, and then it's kind of expected that you stick within that certain way. Now, there's a lot of people that get great uh, success with that, and I think that's awesome. But there are also a lot of other people out there who don't want to learn a singular method, but they want to learn you know, all of the information that's available out there and be able to piece together something that works with their clientele, the kind of music their clientele sings, and that works with, you know, their own uh, personal approach. I mean, I don't really integrate yoga into the voice lessons because I'm about as flexible as a, you know, steel pipe. But, um, you know, it doesn't really work for me, but I know for other people, they get great results with it. So I wanted to create a place where people didn't feel like they had to throw out everything that they've done before, but rather be able to come and learn how the voice works, uh, learn how we can use that functional knowledge to improve the things they've already been doing, give them new ideas and a structured way to build a voice, while also challenging them to think strategically about everything that they do. So in the first three days, we mainly focus on respiration and phonation. Uh, we also cover on posture. And we spend time talking about exercise physiology and how when you're trying to train that balance of CT and TA. So the CT is the muscle that helps elongate the vocal folds. The TA is the muscle that helps kind of shorten and thicken the folds. And then we have two other muscles, the arytenoids or the IA and the lateral cricoarytenoid or the LCA, which kind of regulate if your voice is pressed or breathy. And so we talk about how exercise uh, science gives us some theories that we can apply to that work. We talk about how we can also be strategic about improving someone's lung capacity and how we can use semi-occluded vocal tract exercises to improve vocal function as well. We then talk about how to teach students how to isolate their registers, how to develop the mixed voice, how to begin from speech in developing that mixed voice, which is another angle to getting there, and then how to start building that mixed voice into a belt. And there is not a singular belt. There are bright belts. There are warm belts. There are twangy belts. There are, you know, belts that are really loud and belts that aren't as loud. So we're not trying to teach a singular way to do it, but rather give participants the fact-based knowledge about how the vocal folds interact with the respiratory system so they can troubleshoot each student that is in front of them as an individual instead of a cookie cutter. Then we move into the second three days, and in the second three days, we start covering resonance and articulation. Basically, we look at everything above the vocal folds to the opening of the lips. Um, I've been lucky to win uh, an award called the Van Lawrence Fellowship from the uh, National Association of Teachers of Singing and the Voice Foundation. And that fellowship is to do real-time MRI research. So I've been working with Aaron Johnson at uh, NYU Langone Medical Center and putting singers in an MRI machine so that we can capture video of what is actually happening when they sing legit versus when they sing in a belt voice. And I was just there last Sunday, and I think we're going to have some amazing data coming up. Uh, first of all, I've often taught that the classical vocal tract is more stable than the musical theater vocal tract, and now I have proof of that. It's very, very clear. And we also saw that things such as the soft palate and the tongue don't really change as much between belt qualities and legit qualities as does narrowing in the pharynx and then mouth opening in the jaw and the lips. Uh, so we still have to do some calculations and measurements. We're going to measure 11 points of the vocal tract to see exactly what is changing or what's not changing. But the benefit that I've been able to use for the CCM Institute is I have videos of how the larynx moves, how the tongue moves, how the soft palate moves. And we go through a vocal tract mapping exercise where we explore the extremes and the middle ground. 
And so there are other techniques that use these ideas of learning how to, you know, sing with a low larynx or a high larynx as a specific method. But my idea is, is to map out the fact that the larynx moves so that when the student feels their larynx going low, they don't freak out about it. And it's not some mystery. Or when they feel their larynx going high, they know that could get to be problematic if they sing too loud and they can self-adjust. And what I find is that we live in a generation where students want to know how things work. I have a seven-year-old who watches these cartoons that tell him about electricity. And the other day they had a whole song about bioluminescence, which are, you know, insects or animals that make their own light. And he's singing the song to it. And my son at seven years old knows that big term (laughs) and what it does. So by the time he gets to the age of being able to do voice lessons, he is going to want to know how his voice works. He's not going to just want to sing off of imagery alone. However, with the concept of what we do at Shenandoah, I do know that there are people who want to learn how to sing on imagery alone. And what we do is teach the teachers how to keep that functional knowledge to themselves and create images that elicit the function they're desiring. And so that's kind of the cool pairing that goes here is it's not saying that that doesn't work, but when it fails to work, how are you going to make it work? And when you understand the vocal function, you can readjust those images to elicit the sound that you're looking for. And to help teachers figure out what that sound is that they're looking for, we spend a lot of time in the second session doing troubleshooting and analysis of voices. So we'll play a recording and ask people, what do they hear and the respiratory system and posture? What do they, um, you know, hear at the vocal fold level? What do they hear in the back room, which is everything behind the hump of the tongue? And what do they hear in the front room, which is everything in front of the hump of the tongue? Terms borrowed from Ken Bozeman, who's an amazing uh, acoustics teacher for singers. And then once they start thinking about those components, they listen to voices completely differently. And then we start giving them systems to build exercises based off of motor learning concepts, which are presented by Marcy Rosenberg, who is an SLP at the University of Michigan, who works with their music theater and classical singers a lot. And then to kind of mix things up and give everybody a break, we bring in a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. This year is Ingo Tietze. Uh, we're really excited about that. And then in the third session, we take all that technical knowledge and then we start developing the artist. And we have, uh, you know, sessions on all the different, not all, but a a good variety of different styles that your students might want to sing. And we teach you what the style tags are so you know what's acceptable and then you also will know what's missing. So you can help each student with what they want. Knowing that not every teacher is going to know every song, we give them a complete analysis system so they can take any song that their student wants to work off of and analyze it so that they have the tools to then help that student. We also then want to start uh, you know, moving into the world of authenticity and what it means to share that human experience. And so Marcel Govan, who's one of our uh, uh, you know, faculty, does this great workshop on authenticity and how to help students discover that for themselves. And then we bring in Sherry Sanders, who is a New York city based uh, acting coach for pop rock musicals. And she spends the whole afternoon or the final day getting participants to tap into their authentic self and their performances of pop rock material. So it kind of ends up coming full circle. Teachers come into the Institute having already been, you know, teaching it all. And then we break it down to the very beginning of the basic function of the vocal folds and the respiratory system. And by the end, they have a whole new set of tools for teaching the performer to story, to tell a story, uh, stylizing songs in different genres and how to troubleshoot when problems arise. 
And it's all done in a positive environment. Everybody's on a first name basis here. There's, you know, people who are just beginning to teach out of undergrad. And there's people who have been teaching for years, just retired from a university and want to start a private studio, but know they're going to start teaching more musical theater and pop rock. And so uh, it's a really cool environment. Last year, we even had one of the alphabas from Wicked here, Amazing. Uh, you know, learning because she's starting to teach on the side and uh, she wanted to have some more functional background. So, uh, yeah, we never know who's going to show up, but it's always exciting and we always have a wonderful time. That's so cool. And in the CCM Institute, it's like an adult music lovers camp, summer camp. It's incredible. The nine days that you're there, you're making friends, you're making these great connections that, you know, let's say you are troubleshooting with a student, you know, there's a group on Facebook. You can message them and be like, Hey, I know you do this. What's some of the things that you do? Like you can, you don't have to be alone in it. And that's one of the things that I think is so amazing. And, you know, everybody's just so open to getting better. That's so crucial as teachers, as singers, um, is never stopping with the growth. Just like we said at the beginning of this episode here. Um, so yeah, if you get a chance to do the Institute, do it. You know, by nature, I'm not a competitive person. And so I think that's also one of the things that makes the Institute really special. This isn't a competition. There are over 3 million people who sing or enjoy, sing or enjoy singing, uh, either solo or in a group, according to the National Endowment for the Arts. There are about 7,000 teachers that are members of NATS. Those 7,000 teachers cannot teach the 3 million people who sing or, you know, practicing in a group or by themselves. So... We need to like, to me, break down these barriers, get away from the competitiveness because there's more than enough room for all of us. And the better that we become as a group, the better our music scene will become and the more enjoyment everyone will have, whether it's just singing at a karaoke bar or if it's them performing on a Broadway stage or performing in a, you know, a tour with their rock band. And uh, I think by setting that non-competitive tone from the very beginning, everyone opens up. They start to share what they do. They ask for feedback. They provide feedback. And we all grow. And it's, I always come out of there thinking of things in a new way and having learned a lot, even though I'm the one that's running it. And so uh, it's a thrilling nine days. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> um, Matt, this was really great. Thank you so much. Do you have any lasting thoughts? You're very welcome. For any singers out there that are feeling a little discouraged or just any lasting thoughts for those singers that feel alone out there? Sure. I have an eighth grade yearbook at the house that I keep on my bookshelf in my teaching studio. And it was, you know, when you sign the yearbooks and pen and pencil. And there are a good eight comments in there that say, Matt, you're a terrible singer. I wish you would never, ever sing again. I hate your singing. Please shut up. <laughs> and variations of that. Because I like to sing, and I wasn't very good. When I got to high school and started singing in the choir, my choir director didn't really like me. And so he didn't necessarily give me a whole lot of opportunities. Uh, I would pursue them anyway. Like he didn't want me to audition for the all state choir. So I got the application and did it anyway. And I got in. And to me, that was a big light bulb that maybe I could do something with this. When it came time to go to college, he said, you know, there's no point in you going to college for vocal performance. You know, you should just go be a music educator, be a music teacher, and you can stay here in town and do that. You don't need to be trying to go do the performance. And so it was discouraging, discouraging all the way. I've always been a fighter. My parents, uh, you know, my dad's a factory worker. My mom is a, a teacher now, but I come from a lineage of coal miners and loggers and factory workers. And 
you know, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to fight for something different. So I started off in undergrad as a music education major because my dad had just lost his job and there was no money to send me to the school I wanted to go to where I was going to be a musical theater educator, education major. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, my dream. I could combine both of my loves, music theater and music ed. But, you know, without income to pay that tuition, it wasn't going to happen. So I started off at a local college, got to sing in a lot of choirs and, Within the first three or four weeks, I had the head of the opera program come to me and say, you know, I could really use your bass voice in the opera. Will you come be in the opera? And I thought, sure, why not? And I did it, and I kind of fell in love with it. Mm. And so I started exploring operatic material, and I got to the point where I decided, hey, I probably should go to a school that has more of a, you know, hardcore training program for opera singers. And my coach at that time said, hey, there's a school in Cleveland called the Cleveland Institute of Music. You should go audition there. And I was like, uh, okay, sure. And he drove me up and uh, another friend to audition. I went in and met everybody. I was like, this seems like a pretty cool school. And I got in. Little did I know that the Cleveland Institute of Music is actually on par with Juilliard, Curtis, the oh. uh, New, you know, New England Conservatory, uh, Eastman. It's one of the top of the top uh, music conservatories. And after my first semester, I was told I should probably think of doing something else with my life and look at other programs and other colleges, that they didn't think I was hacking it in my acting training, and they didn't really think I had the skills I needed to succeed. And I decided, no, that's not going to happen. And I started busting my butt and pushing myself even further. Uh, you know, I left school, got some outreach gigs singing opera, got a full ride and assistantship to go to get my master's degree. And during my master's degree, I saw a sign up of a rock band that was looking for a vocal coach. I ended up calling them, connecting with them and learned that they had a five time Grammy award winning producer who was working with them. And that guy was the one who was giving me the feedback of what to teach the band. And then I would show up at wow. rehearsals with him and learn from him. And I took a vocal pedagogy class in the fall, I believe it was, of my second year in grad school, and I learned about vocal function, and it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Seriously, like I graduated high school with a 2.6. At one point, I had a 1.6. And so I, you know, science was always, I'm not doing science. But once <laughs> I learned how my voice worked, and I all of a sudden started instantly fixing problems that had plagued me for six, seven, eight years, I was hooked. And I started reading into things. I started pushing myself to learn it, even if I had to read it five to ten times initially. And I kept pushing forward and gathering every resource I could until I figured it out. And now my voice can do anything I want it to do. I prefer to teach over performing, so I don't really perform publicly anymore. Uh, you know, I get more enjoyment from watching a student perform. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. That's where I am at this point in life, and I love it. But, you know, it, it's been an amazing journey for me to go from the kid who had D's in biology and chemistry in high school and was told, my guidance counselor also told me not to go to college at all, that I'd be a great mechanic or AC repair person and I should go to the vocational school. I was even sent to the vocational school one summer to spend a week there to try to find a program that would be a good fit for me. And so as somebody who was told, you can't do this, you can't do this, you don't have talent, and I finished my doctorate with a 4.0 and have won a scientific research fellowship, if <laughs> I could do that, anybody can do that. There was nothing special about me from the very beginning when I decided to sing. The only thing that made me stand out is a refusal to fail because I did not want to be an embarrassment to my family or to my friends, and I didn't want to work in a factory. And that was the driving force for what I did, and I just kept pushing away and pushing away, even through the discouragement. And so my message to everybody is, is that if you truly love this, 
adopt a growth mindset, keep going after it, and work hard. And if you're sitting down at night and watching TV and eating snacks, you should be practicing if you're not where you want to be yet. Go find time to practice and figure something out, right? Because it's a highly competitive industry. And the more knowledge that you have, the better off you're going to be. Because I have never met an uneducated stage director or music director. Every one of them I have met at the highest levels of this business are some of the most brilliant people I have ever talked with. And the more knowledge you can gain along the way, the more appealing you are going to be to them. And it pays off in ways that you couldn't even expect. Wow. Yep. I love that story, Matt. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you didn't quit because we all need you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad I didn't quit either. So. Oh, my gosh. Thanks, uh, Matt. Great. So there you have it, guys. That's my conversation with Matt. Isn't he great? Um, If you are curious and want to check out his blog, go ahead and type in edwardsvoice.wordpress.com. Every Monday he puts out an article and he calls it Mix It Up Monday. Um, One of his most recent ones is Addressing a Narrow Tongue, The Silent Laugh, Vocal Identity, This One Looks Good, Using Falsetto to Free the Male Voice. This is all good stuff. Eventually, I promise you guys, we'll get into some vocal anatomy. We'll talk about the larynx. We'll talk about your cricothyroid, your thyroid arytenoid. But that's, you know, we talk about that in the voice lessons. But eventually, we'll get there. You've heard some of the terms thrown around a bit in our conversation, so I'll get there. But I just want to say thank you again for listening to the podcast. It means a lot. Um, if you are interested in following me, my name is just Christy Bissell. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. Um, you can find me at New York Vocal Coaching. Our website is just newyorkvocalcoaching.com if you're interested in voice lessons. And we also have this incredible YouTube channel called Voice Lessons to the World. It's with um, my boss, Justin Stoney. And he's always putting out these really great videos about all the technical stuff. So check that out. And if you have questions, email me, Christy at NewYorkVocalCoaching.com, K-R-I-S-T-Y at NewYorkVocalCoaching.com, or just my personal email, K-R-I-S-T-Y-B-I-S-S-E-L-L at Yahoo.com. Anyway, thank you so much. Happy singing, and we will talk next week. Bye.